When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Daniel, we're your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is the great Caitlin Cooper of Indie Cornrows, and as you could expect, considering Caitlin is on, we are focusing on the Indiana Pacers, and I thought this was a really great conversation. Got into some real detail on what is making their start to the season so strong and what they can build on the offensive theory, transition play, Miles Turner and Tyrese Halliburton, Ben Matherin. We go pretty much everywhere you could possibly go, which is not a surprise considering Kelly Cooper. I will note that my audio isn't the greatest. I think part of that is due to, uh, there was part of it was a mic issue, but the bigger part of it is that I've been feeling under the weather. So I apologize for that. But Caitlin sounds great and her insight is great. And so, and that should be more than enough for you. So hopefully you enjoy it. I, I'm very confident that you will. Brought to you by betonline.ag. Use that CLNS50 promo code to get yourself a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. And this episode runs a little shorter, in part because I wasn't feeling great. About 45 minutes in total, but so much great content here on one of the league's best league pass watches and one of the league's best stories. Hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me on again. I wasn't anticipating that the Pacers were going to be a talking point this early in the season, but here we are. That's very fair. I mean, I want I was going to want to talk to you either way way because I, I I think your insight on onto teams is incredibly valuable. But you're right. I mean, Indiana, as we record this on Monday morning, they are not only nine and six, but they have a positive net rating. The Pacers are outscoring opponents outside of garbage time. And that is extremely impressive. And they haven't been completely full full squad though. You know, I mean we'll talk about that in a bit. The place I want to start, uh Nate and I actually did a little bit on this in the 15 and 60 that we recorded on Saturday, on Sunday night is how aggressively Indiana is pushing the ball. And I really like the way that Unpredictable does this. And so right now, the Pacers, in terms of offensive time to shot, so whatever the precursor is, whether it's a defensive rebound or a steal or a made basket, they have the third lowest time to shot in the entire NBA. And when you consider that Indiana's defense hasn't been spectacular, like that's the the easiest way sometimes to goose that number. But it's been, at least to my eyes, really a team effort. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a thing that you and I have talked about a few 
times. I mean, at the end of last season, that wasn't really showing up for them outside of like the first four games that Halliburton had played. And it's pretty evident when you watch Tyrese that, you know, he is a guy that even off of makes, he wants to get downhill and head the other way very quickly. And there was kind of that push and pull about, you know, would this actually be a thing that comes into fruition next year? And the way that they had drafted by taking, you know, Benedict Matherin and, and Kendall Brown, even though Kendall Brown's playing with the Maddie suggested to me that organizationally that Rick Carlisle was on board with them becoming more athletic and wanting to be a quicker team. And we're seeing those results really early on. I, I like to use that in predictable number as well. Cleaning the glass also has them at second in transition frequency, fifth in pace. Um, I don't have access to second spectrums numbers, but I imagine if I did that Tyrese would probably be, you know, top two, top three and throwing hit ahead passes. And that's a big part of this as well. It's not just him, you know, dribbling the ball up the floor really quickly. He's looking to advance the ball. And then, you know, the Pacers are also second in the league in early three-point attempts. So within, you know, the first 22 to 18 seconds, they're really firing away. And some of that's, you know, Buddy sprinting ahead to the line or Matherin, you know, taking transition threes as he's pulling up. But also like a little thing that I think Tyrese is doing that's making a difference is when we think of, you know, guards around the basket throwing a drop-off pass when like a trailer cuts behind the ball. He's kind of extended that out to three where he will dribble ahead of like a trailer or whoever the shooter is and dribble right in front of them and then push the ball behind him so that it's creating a very early open shot right away. And you can see him do that probably two or three times every game, which is helping them juice how many of the early three attempts, three point attempts they're getting. And then also their bigs are running the floor. Um, Miles and Jalen Smith are both pretty active at running and sucking in defenders that way as well, in addition to Isaiah Jackson. So it really is a team effort and how how they've pushed and, and become this transition and space team so far this season. I think the, there, are, there are a lot of a lot of great insight there, but I think the place that I want to follow up on, at least first, is those hit-ahead passes. Because part of what a primary ball handler or point guard, however you want to define terms, does is they help set the tone for the team. And so if a player is alongside Tyrese Halliburton and knows if I run the floor hard, I might get an easy bucket, they're going to do that more often. Like it, it creates incentives. It's it, it's positive. I mean, a lot of us who really liked Lonzo Ball as a prospect, that was a part of us, of course, LeBron James and Kyle Lowry and numerous other wonderful players over the years. And the beauty of a good hit, a good and willing underscore willing hit ahead passer is that it creates those benefits for everyone on the team. It isn't necessarily just the big men. It could be, as you said, the Matherin and Buddy Heels of the world going to the edges. And if you can establish it as well as Indiana has so far, then ideally it becomes an expectation for players who come in, whether it's from the Mad Ants, as you were talking about before, or draft picks, free agent signings over the next couple of years. It's like, okay, if you want to come here, you're going to have to run hard because Tyrese Alberton is going to Yeah, and absolutely. And I think that that's kind of, you know, the balance overall with Tyrese to an extent, because if you look right now, like he's leading the league in touches per game. He's leading the lead in passes per game. Um, If you multiply that with his time of possession, I'm pretty sure that the only player that's possessing the ball more than him right now is Luka Doncic. There might be one other person, but like his usage still isn't that high. So that's kind of the thing that like he has taken some steps forward in that degree, but the inclusiveness that he plays with overall, as you say, makes people, it's going to make you run harder in transition when you anticipate you're going to get the ball. Maybe you, you know, are more active as a screener when you know that you're going to touch it. You're more active as a cutter because you know he's going to look for you. So um, I think that that's, you know, central to a lot of what the Pacers do both in transition and in the half court. Right. And another element of of the Pacers that I love, this is just people who've listened to Real Jam Radio will know this about me 
ideas. I love running after makes. Now, it can be very physically straining. It can be difficult, and it doesn't always lead to success. But right now, there are three teams tied for the lowest time to shot after a made opponent field goal. And that is the Pacers, the Hawks, and OKC, who just so happen to be the top three in overall time to shot. And part of that is because those teams are about a second per made shot faster getting their own attempt up than the median in the league. And generally speaking, Seth Partnow, numerous other very intelligent people have talked about this before, the earlier you attack, the earlier you get into actions, the more likely it is that you will have success, whether that success comes immediately because the opponent makes a miscue in semi-transition or just because you're making them work for an extra second or two on that shot clock. Well, yeah, because I mean, that's a lot of the times when you look at transition, like obviously, you know, Synergy's just going to put, you know, the average, like you'll look at it quickly and it'll be like, you know, poor, below average, average, excellent. You know, the the measure for that for transition is going to be different than the other ones because transition play is so, you know, a highly efficient thing to be doing. So, and that was the other thing with the Pacers too, is you say that like Tyrese definitely likes to push off of makes. The more possessions they can get, the better. Because, you know, at the back into last season they'd play a team like Toronto or Memphis who really loads up on possessions both in transition as well on the offensive glass and they just couldn't give up they weren't getting as many as many possessions as their opponent was and you know they see like in addition to just you know sometimes we think of transition as just running fast and there's more to how you do that and what you're getting in early offense than just that they run a lot of quick hitting sets as well so like if they do get out and run right away they're just going to set a wide screen you know for Matherin or for Buddy and maybe then they're just catching it and immediately getting downhill especially with you know the way that Matherin's been able to get rolling. You can point to a lot of actions that Rick Carlisle is using that are going to be very quick hitting, and, and you can see that every game and how much pressure that's putting on opposing defenses to be able to corral that. It also creates, yeah, as you said, it creates strain on the defense to try to corral it. And so that's, you know, that that anxiety, that stress, it, it creates benefits in, in other ways. And I brought up before that it's a team effort for the Pacers. And one of my favorite ways to quantify that, you, you talked about cleaning the, the way cleaning the glass does their splits. And right now, the Pacers are, you know, they're so if you want to do just Tyrese Halliburton on and off, they're 83rd percentile in terms of proportion of, of plays in the half court when he's on the floor, 77.2, which is great. But it doesn't get that much worse when Tyrese Halliburton is sitting, and TJ McConnell's a big part of that. And I think another credit there, and this is an old, old Rick Carlisle chestnut, is that the Pacers are playing multiple, I don't want to use the word guards because it doesn't have to be guards, but players who are capable of initiating, capable of making making passes, capable of making decisions, and who have that impetus as a part of their, let's call it basketball DNA. I mean, yeah, they run a lot of lineups. I mean, this is in part why, you know, O'Shea and Terry Taylor, O'Shea's kind of filtered his way back in now that Chris Duarte's been out. But, you know, they weren't active parts of the rotation there for a bit because they are playing lineups where, I mean, I've called them four guard lineups where sometimes it's not even Buddy Heald. Sometimes it'll be, you know, Matherin, Tyrese, Andrew, and, you know, Chris Duarte or, you know, whoever it may be when they're healthy. They've played lineups, as you're saying right there, like the night that Chris Duarte got hurt, they played groupings where TJ McConnell, Tyrese, and uh, Andrew Nemhard were playing all at the same time. So three guys that were, you know, kind of pegged going into the season is like, you know, maybe Andrew Nemhard would be the third string point guard. You know, Andrew Nemhard's now a starter. Like, and you can see that with actions that they're running. Like I recently wrote this piece about how they're using guards as touch screeners. And they went to that several times against Houston where, you know, Andrew Nemhard will approach, just set a quick touch screen in the corner for Tyrese's player. Tyrese will throw it overhead. And now Andrew Nemhard's virtually acting as, you know, the role man and making plays out of the middle of the floor that way. They'll flash Andrew Nemhard against zone fairly often as well. Um, So yeah, I mean, that is kind of a Carlisle thing of, you know, having guard play by committee. Like obviously Tyrese is still possessing the ball a lot, 
but they have lots of guys out there who are capable of making reads, especially in second side situations as well. There was a really cool section of that piece you wrote on the guard screens about attacking the switch pocket. And I think that gets into this concept that you just brought up of how it can be a real challenge for perimeter players to navigate screening actions because it's something that happens sometimes, but it, it creates opportunities, especially for fast players, for players who can attack quickly that you might not get another way. It's it's a part of what I think is actually like a competitive advantage that offenses don't use enough, especially in some ways when you have a, a bigger guard, but it doesn't have to be that. Like, for example, the Pelicans during the Point Zion year did a great job using guards to screen for him and as the ball handler, and that created just panic situations for the defense. The Pacers are doing it more with these guard-guard ones, as you talked about, but the concept, I personally believe, is dramatically underutilized at the time. Yeah, with Tyrese, the thing with the switch pocket, yeah, I show in there that, you know, Buddy Heald will come set a screen and then that creates some confusion and, and Tyrese is also really good at manipulating it. So like if Buddy does approach to set that touch screen, sometimes he'll fake like he's going to throw the overhead pass. Both people will then drift back toward Buddy and, you know, Tyrese is getting a wide open shot. But, you know, we had talked on the prior podcast that the one thing that I was going to be watching from for Tyrese was, you know, how would he handle this year when big switch out to him or when, you know, they put lengthier defenders and so far he's kind of found like these three hacks and that's a big that one is a big part because you know if he there's always this little window of space where one defender's handing you know the ball handlers defending defenders handing them over to the next defender where the screeners defender is going to be trailing by just a little bit when that switch happens and you know you watch trey young and he has like this infinite range and he's kind of like the main person that i think about of being able to hit that switch pocket so now tyrese is taking a higher share of threes from outside of 25 feet he was pretty close to already having more outside of 30 through these first like 12 games than what he had in 26 last year so being able to take that deeper range but while that switch is happening he's just rising up above it so you know if he's beating the switch by beating the timing of the switch i think is the way that i phrased it it's not putting as much pressure on him to have to do something off the dribble and yeah i mean rick carlisle definitely likes to use a lot of guard to guard screens they use you know just regular ghost screens that's another way that they attack switches a lot that if tyrese has a big on him you'll always see buddy just you know brushing up against that big trying to create just a little bit of hesitation so that you know tyrese can get into the paint at the end of quarters they run one four flat a lot where you know you're gonna have the guard come up from out of the dunker spot and you know, sprint into space. So there's a lot of different actions that they can do that with, but it just, it, it's tough to guard, especially with the way the Pacers are doing it because they're not only having the person sprint out as a popper. They're also having some of these guards be borderline rollers. Like the one play that I cite in that article, they like to have like Jalen Smith will set a ghost screen for Tyrese on the ball. Then Miles Turner will set a down screen or a Ram screen for, you know, the guard, be it Andrew Nemhart or Chris Duarte to then go set the touch screen for the ball. And that guy will actually roll into the paint and then be able to make a play for there. So it's a lot of unusual stuff. I think if people tune into a Pacer game, they're going to see a, a lot of different players doing things that you don't normally equate with the size of that player. And that's kind of a general NBA trend, right? Where we're not really matching, you know, role to size, we're matching role to skill. So um, you might even see like Miles Turner come off, uh, you know, a pin down, which, you know, isn't necessarily super common for a lot of centers to be doing, but that's stuff that the Pacers are willing to utilize and, and try out. 
Also, sort of like the the guard screens we were talking about before, centers coming off of pin downs, part of the reason you do it is to get a good shot, but also part of it is because those opposing centers, if that's who's guarding Miles Turner, don't really know how to handle that. And so you're creating this panic, this confusion within the system. And something I wanted to have out there for those who aren't following the Pacers as closely is that like Tyrese Halliburton is running a ton of pick and roll this year. About 48% of his possessions have been as a pick and roll ball handler. And as an individual scorer, he's been very efficient. A little bit under a point per possession, 0.97 for those who are interested, that's 73rd percentile. And it goes down a little bit if you include passes, but you know, the Pacers will we'll probably talk about their shooting at some point. They don't necessarily have all of those opportunities. And also what I think is incredibly telling, inc- even including passes, so far Tyrese Halliburton has only had 19 isolation possession. And what that means is they're not asking him to do that. And isolations are really hard. There are certain players who defy the normal gravity and orthodoxy of the NBA and are unbelievably good at ISOs. But one of the signs of a healthy offense to me is that if you don't have one of those individuals, that you're not asking other players to do it and you're not getting caught up in some of the big problems. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's something that you'll hear the coaching staff say a lot. And this, if people want to see an example of this, this is in part why I was so interested to watch the Pacers play the Raptors because the Raptors are a team that isolates a lot in part because they have all those lengthy wings and whichever one of them has a mismatch, they're going to you know, use a bully drive or put them in the post and try to take advantage that way and that game very much the first half of that game was played to the Raptors style and the second half of the game the Pacers were like hey you know we're very small we have to go double all those mismatches and and try to force the ball out to the perimeter and we'll just win in a shootout but point being is offensively they started playing somewhat to the Raptors style of play and that they were seeing you know the Raptors are switching out with length and there was some isolation going on in that game so after halftime you hear the coaching staff talk about it. They'll repeat this a lot. We need to get to the next action. And that I think is probably the biggest hallmark of this offense that in addition to them playing fast when they're in the half court, it's very easy for them to get to one thing to the next. It's never just like, it's very rare that half being an exception that it's it's a one and done play. Like even just what I said before about Buddy, like if Tyrese does get a switch, they don't just leave him on the island like you're saying a lot of the time. There There's a few instances where they've done that. Like down the stretch, they played the Pistons. Isaiah Stewart was switching out and he made some big, you know, self-created threes in that instance. But, you know, if Buddy then comes, sets a ball screen, now that's, you know, effectively another, you know, quote unquote, pick and roll for Tyrese to be able to get an advantage. Another thing that he's doing to beat switches that's not going to be in isolation is he's using the threat of his sidestep to the right three to get that big to close to him. And then he passes out of it and gets the ball back in like a give and go situation. So, you know, they did this against Brooklyn where he got Nicholas Claxton to be jumpy, come out to him on the perimeter. He passed it to Miles Turner, cut in front of that switch. Miles Turner gave him the ball. And now, you know, that's being logged as a cut. So, um, yeah, I think absolutely that's a big part of it that they don't just rely on, you know, Buddy Heald or, or Tyrese to just be breaking down guys off the dribble. He doesn't waste a lot of time doing that. Um, they connect it to other sets and other actions where they're going to find advantages somewhere else on the floor. And he's all also, like I said, found hacks, whether that's, you know, the switch pocket, the give and go. Um, and, you know, if he is in an isolation situation, you will see him now a little bit more than in seasons past. He will sidestep to the left, which, you know, if an opponent's going to shade him that way, which I think is still kind of the way to go. He does have that as, as an escape hatch if he absolutely needs to. It's also striking in the context of what Rick Carlisle's previous team is doing right now. Of course, they have Luka Doncic, who is a unique, distinct player, but you have that. And that leads me into a, a question that I've been pondering with the Pacers, and I, I agree with you. I've been very impressed with their offense. I think people sometimes focus 
focus on this too much, but how would you apportion credit for the way they're doing this? Because obviously it's a combination of coaching and players executing. Yeah, I mean, I think the best example that I would give that kind of categorizes what their offense is, and this is going to seem like a really random example, but they came out, I believe it was the game they played against the Sixers. Their opening set was a lob set for Aaron Neesmith, where he kind of loops around a big standing at the free throw line. But while he's doing that, it kind of looks like he's going to, you know, fake um, a pin down for Buddy as he makes that loop. So there's a little bit of hesitation. He scores the lob in that game. They then go play the Wizards. And after halftime, they try to open the set with that exact same play. The Wizards cover it up. Christoph Sprzingis covers up the lob, but they have a counter already built in where like Aaron Neesmith doesn't just, you know, back out of the play. He then comes off an exit screen. So the Pacers are looking for that as their counter. Like, can we get to that option? If they can't get to that option, the team automatically knows, okay, we've, we've run through our offense. We now need to spray out because now it's going to be time for, you know, Tyrese to basically be a warm, cozy blanket and just, you know, go run angled spread pick and roll and probably something good's going to happen from that. So I do think that it's hand in hand. I think that, you know, Mike Weinar coordinates the offense. I'm sure that that's somewhat a team effort with Rick Carlisle as well. I think they have a lot of creative actions that are fitting what personnel they have very well. And they have counters to those actions. And then they know that they can run spread pick and roll with Tyrese if they need to, and probably still find an option. So um, just a lot of little wrinkles. Like another one that I like to bring up is just, I think that the partnership with Carlisle and Benedict Mathern has just been really good in terms of all the different ways that they're creating opportunities for Matherin to attack with his defender trailing, which I think is important for him. But like they'll run Veer, which is, you know, a ball screen into a pin down, but they'll have before Benedict gets that pin down, they'll have him fake like he's going to set a flare screen for the other person that's over there. So it's almost like a screen the screener into Veer, which they ran this for Justin Holiday last year. It just looks, you know, a whole heck of a lot different when it's Benedict Matherin. He can catch the ball on the move and get rolling downhill to the basket versus, you know, with Justin, it was just going to be him flying off. And, you know, he didn't shoot the ball at a super high level last year with either team that he was with. But um, to answer your question, I attribute it to both. I think that Tyrese Halliburton is, you know, so good at shifting and manipulating tertiary defenders and playing the cat and mouse game. But I also think that the coaching staff is putting guys in the right positions that's going to accentuate what their strengths are. I love the point about putting Matherin in position to succeed. And it, it's a great reminder of the challenge navigating a young player who you want to improve, but also you want to help your team right now, where the Pacers, because of Tyrese Halliburton, have the luxury that they don't need the ball in Ben Matherin's hands all the time, but you want it a little bit. You want to get him those reps. And it's, you know, the concept of competitive advantage. Right now, what does Matherin do better than the players who are guarding him? And it's, I, I think it's like that movement element. And so, as you said, it's very different than Justin Holiday, And so it puts Matherin in a position to succeed. He's done an incredibly good job so far this year, drawing free throws. So overall, Matherin, 7.5 free throw attempts per 36 minutes. That is really, really good. And generating an advantage through scheme is actually a more sustainable way to do that because you're not relying as much on individual brilliance, maybe individual brilliance in a very specific way. Yeah, I mean, and this is a good point too, because I did not, I don't want to plug the piece again, but in the article, you can see that they do slightly different things when, you know, it's Chris Duarte exploding out of the corner versus Benedict Matherin exploding out of the corner. So one of the most common plays that they're going to run for Benedict Matherin is, you know, every NBA team does it, but Chicago action where it's a pin down into a handoff. So they'll use that touch screen on one side, reverse it to the big who will then go 
handed off to Benedict Mather and exploding out of the corner. You know, if it's Chris Duarte, they'll set the pin down to help him get some more extra juice to turn up out of the out of the corner and, and get the ball and then go downhill. If it's Benedict Mather, and a lot of times you'll see the player that would be setting that pen that pin down 45 cut and get out of there. So now it becomes an empty side, you know, handoff situation where he's not going to have to read a tagger then at that point. There's no blind side defender for him to have to read. It's just either, you know, I catch it and I get downhill and I score. If I need to make a pass, it's empty side. There's nobody over there. So they're they're simplifying the playmaking for him as well. And like everything that they run, whether it's, you know, an away screen out of wide, whether it's what I just said with the veer action, if, if it's an, gets an opponent that's playing drop coverage or it's when they're playing Chicago, it's all for him to be attacking tilted defenses or with his defender trailing or, you know, sometimes they'll use him as screeners in certain situations as well out of Spain or, you know, it's, it's him attacking second side out of spot up situations. And that's another part of it too, that like you talk about him being able to draw contact. He's very sneaky in being able to create separation and spot up situations with like a, a subtle shoulder shimmy or a jab step or a foot fake that allows him to just get one step. And then his body control is really good. Like they played the Miami heat and there was a possession where he was in a spot up situation at the top of the key. He gathered his dribble from outside the free throw line and the heat had four players in the paint and Matherin got to the rim and scored an and one out of that because his, his, footwork on the Euro step and balance is just so good that he was still able to get to the rim. So um, I have noticed a little bit here over the last couple games, some stuff that slowed him down just a little bit that like if they are running that Chicago action, um, Orlando on Saturday started switching that up the line, which means, you know, you switch the pin down and then you also switch the handoff as well. So it was putting like Mo Bamba or, you know, Bulbul or whoever at the top of the key against them. And then Matherin's having to do a little bit more creation out of his dribble to attack that in a switching situation. And that seemed to give him a little bit more problems than whenever, like I said, it's with his defender trailing against opponents that don't switch that. So that'll be something to watch how he handles that moving forward. But I mean, I just think, you know, coming off the bench, leading the NBA and scoring, I think that everything that the Pacers have done to kind of foster his development here in the early season has been just splendid for the most part. It has been incredibly positive. Wholeheartedly agree with you there. Plenty more to talk about with Caitlin Cooper, but first a message from betonline.ag. BetOnline remains your number one source for all your sports betting for football and basketball this season. You'll always find the latest odds, team matchup information, player news, and game trends at BetOnline. Always your continued source for sports wagering information. BetOnline features live betting, free contests, and live sports for almost any sport or game imaginable. We are the fastest and easiest way to bet all your favorite NFL, NBA, NHL, MMA, tennis, boxing, and even golf games and events. So head to betonline.ag to join and use the CLNS50 promo code that gets you a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. So make sure to use the promo code CLNS50 to receive your rewards at BetOnline, where the game starts. Coming at it from the perspective of somebody who, of course, does not have the bandwidth or capability of watching the Pacers as closely as you do, one of the most striking things, and yes, he's only played 300 minutes so far this year, is Miles Turner's offensive season so far. So right now, as we're recording this, Turner, 68% true shooting on 22 usage, both of which would be career highs. And what is driving that improvement, albeit in a small sample, is not making a ton of threes, though he is at 40%, not even on the highest volume. 
it's that Miles Turner has almost doubled his free throw attempt rate from the highest level it has been in any previous season. Is there, I mean, we've talked about a lot of the scheme stuff. Is there something you can point to as being a clear explanation for how that has happened so far? Right. So that's definitely the biggest difference. I mean, I think that the thing that I would point to and what has been a long source of frustration for me with him over his career is that he doesn't always recognize um, opportunities or find his own usage or notice that like, hey, this team changed their scheme in order for me to go find my advantage. I need to do X. So when they played the New Orleans Pelicans, I thought that that was probably his most complete and impactful game of his career. So the Pelicans start out with Valanciunas on the floor and drop. And as you say, like he's not taking as many threes this year, but in that case, you know, Valanciunas isn't coming out of the paint. Miles is like, hey, I'm gonna. When I catch the ball, I'm gonna shoot. I'm open. Where he would have record scratched in certain circumstances, or are not always looked at the rim when he catches in, in those circumstances. Then as the game went on, the Pelicans were like, okay, we're gonna go to zone, and Miles is ducking in. And then by you know the fourth quarter, the Pelicans didn't even play Valanciunas. They didn't play any bigs other than Zion Williamson, and they started switching everything. And that's kind of been you know an issue for Miles over the years, where if he did get a switch as a pop threat, he would just kind of stand on the perimeter and wouldn't dive into that. And in that game, he was rolling directly into the switches and putting a lot of pressure on their defense. And that was a big part of the Pacers offense and winning that game. So I think that that's kind of the main number one difference. I had a stat that I tweeted on Sunday where you just said that, that his free throw attempt rate is over 60%. I think for his career, it's like 30. And as the role man or as the screener, he's rolling on over 60% of the screens that he's using. So that the last time he started at solo five in 2018, 19, that was at 29%. Like he was just kind of a magnet to popping in a lot of circumstances where you know, he wasn't always a willing roller. So now with Tyrese, like one of the two of them was going to have to make an adjustment in my opinion, because I think a lot of times opposites are better. And Tyrese is this guy who's going to dribble off the pick and kind of survey. He's his game's more built on his floater and his range. And, you know, miles is a popper that wasn't really going to be creating the ability to, uh, create the same uncertainty with Tyrese's ability to throw skip passes and, and like I said, fake a floater or fake a lob pass if you don't have somebody rolling to the basket. And like even during preseason, we weren't seeing this to the degree that we are now. Like they played the Hornets. The Hornets were playing drop then as well. But Miles would kind of take like one or two steps and abort that role. And now it's almost just like, you know, a pick and pop in the lane. And now like you watch them play the Hornets the other night and the Pacers just kind of spammed high pick and roll between Tyrese and Miles because Miles was rim rolling all the way to the rim. So now now that he's putting pressure moving toward the basket, there's more opportunities for him to be drawing fouls than before when he was mostly a pick and pop guy. And then also he's been more atta- aggressive attacking the offensive glass that doesn't necessarily show on the numbers, but in part because he'll go after an offensive rebound, he's getting fouled on the offensive rebound or in pursuit of it. Um, that's another element of it. And then thirdly, um, I think he has been more physical in certain circumstances against some, against some of these switches. Like automatically he's, he's, He's burying his guy very deep on the roll. And sometimes some of these smaller guys are just grabbing him before he even gets the ball. And, you know, if it's in a bonus situation that he's getting to the line or sometimes it's on the catch and then he's getting to the line. And he's also making better use of his left shoulder to get to his his right hook shot. So like last year, he attempted 10 total hook shots in 41 games. And this year, he's already seven of nine, which, you know, he's played 10 games. So almost a hook shot per game that he's attempted. Um, and he's getting his, his shoulder into that guy. I also think he's been a little bit headier with pump fakes um, around the basket to get guys in the air before he's drawing contact. And then he's used an elongated drop step as well to try to draw some contact. So there are certain circumstances where I 
I kind of question from the opponent's standpoint, like, okay, if Miles Turner puts the ball on the floor and he's attacking with his left across the lane and using a Euro step, probably just back up and let him see if he can finish that. But they're fouling him. And he's, he's kind of just, you know, running his body into guys in certain circumstances where he puts the ball on the floor, where I think over time, maybe you just, you know, see what he can do there. But um, it's definitely been, you know, I think he's, he's been more aggressive in playing with more force than he has ever before in his career. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, making adjustments to be playing with the type of point guard that Tyrese is. And if one of them was going to adjust, Miles is the player that was going to need to adjust. And that's what we've seen so far. I remember us talking, I think it was in the middle of last season about the potential tension between Hal Burton and, and Miles. And so that you get into that question of like, where's the adjustment going to come from? And as you said, it's Ben Turner. And it's such a foundational point, but where a player is on the floor just kind of as things progress makes a huge difference in terms of what kind of shots they're getting what sort of opportunities are there and I think that's been a you know kind of a feedback loop for Turner where being closer to the basket this has been as you mentioned his best offensive rebounding season so far also it is a whole heck of a lot easier to get fouled when you're close to the basket and I expect that attempt rate to go down I mean 8.1 per 36 minutes is incredible and especially because Turner career 77% free throw shooter currently 83 like he converts a lot of those this isn't a you know like a Ben Simmons situation or anything like that and so you have this player who in part because of his pick and roll partner in part because the structure of the offense is so fundamentally different with Sabonis gone and everything else is put I I mentioned this with Matherin but is like it's a little bit passive but he's put in a better position to succeed and has fully embraced that as well yeah I mean and we'll see how teams react to it as the season goes on because we've never really seen this before because like I said when like they played the Wizards when he had the 40 point game and the Wizards last year. I mean, the Wizards started switching um, the screens with him and that just kind of marginalized him where he ended up just standing on the perimeter. And now, like I said, in that Pelicans game, like they're switching everything and and he's he's being more aggressive and actually looking to get the ball in those situations. Like it's kind of wild to watch now, like them, you know, reverse the ball two sides of the floor, trying to enter it into him in the post. Like that's just not something that I've, I've witnessed from him over his, you know, seven or eight year career. And whether teams will, maybe they won't continue switching it. Like if he is continuing to be successful and and has the hook shot going over the switches, maybe they'll be like, you know, we're not going to switch. Um, And maybe that will then benefit Tyrese Halliburton because he's not having the lengthier defender on him anymore. Um, Or one one adjustment that did create a tiny snag for him that I'll be curious to see if other teams try to replicate. And this had more to do with Jokic than it did, I think, with what the Pacers were doing. But the Nuggets came out from the tip in that game and put Jokic on Jalen Smith rather than Miles, I think, to, to prevent Jokic from having to defend in space. And as it turned out, Jokic got into foul trouble very early anyways, but it did have an effect on how Miles Turner was being used. So in that first quarter, he was one of four from the field and three of his shots came from three because he was being defended by Aaron Gordon. And then a little bit later, Jeff Green, when Aaron Gordon came out of the game. And there might be some incentive for teams to do that because there are games where Jalen Smith gets hot from three, but he's not shooting the three like he was over the first, you know, seven or eight games after he got traded last year. So it would be interesting to see if more teams will cross match that, let their big sag off. And if that forces miles back out onto the perimeter, because they even did that when Isaiah Jackson came in, Jokic continued to defend Isaiah Jackson rather than miles. So then the Pacers were like, okay, we want to put Jokic into action. So Isaiah Jackson, you're the screener and miles, you're going to be 
back on on the perimeter again, similar to what his role was was with Sabonis last year. So that's really the only team that I've seen do that, but it did have an impact on how um, the Pacers were using him in that particular game, and and that's going to be something to monitor because the teams that you know they're Brooklyn too. He had switches against Joe Harris, and that was a pretty rough game for him against Joe Harris and Royce O'Neal. And Brooklyn would bring the defender off of Jalen Smith, and he had a little bit more trouble reading that help defender as well because you know there's other lineups like in part to contrast when they played the Pelicans they were playing Matherin, Nemhard, Tyrese Halliburton and Buddy so they had gone really small you know Miles isn't going to see a lot of traffic in the lane against switches when you have four guards out there versus if if it's a situation where you need to have you know Jalen or Isaiah Jackson or potentially O'Shea Brissett so um, I'm going to be really curious to see how teams continue to adapt to him but right now like most of the criticisms I've had of him over his career he's definitely answered and I think that this is the best stretch of his career over these last 10 games and in my opinion it's super encouraging and a part of what has made me so excited about the Pacers at the start of the year far beyond the nine and six record and everything else is the idea that this is a sustainable credible foundation and the Pacers are far from the most talented iteration that I think they're going to have in this form now there is the big question of what in the world happens with Miles Turner after this year he is an unrestricted free agent unless he signs an extension but you brought up Jalen Smith and Jalen Smith has some especially when he's hitting threes he has merit and value for the Pacers and he's under contract for for another couple years but you think about what this roster can be moving forward and yeah it's looking like their own first round pick is not going to be as strong as as some may be expected but they have salary flexibility they have intriguing players depending on how kevin pritchard in this front office wants to manage it and so assuming they can keep the principles and i've really liked the halliburton mathroom minutes as well which because mathroom is still coming off the bench we're not seeing quite as much of that but what i'm seeing is the outline of what this team could be a few years from now and it's very positive yeah it's definitely encouraging and at the same time like you bring that up with with you know miles's contract situation that's kind of the biggest question facing the team right now and a tough one for the front office to answer. I mean, they certainly have more information to that than I do, but, you know, having to ask themselves how real is what we're seeing right now in terms of, you know, what their win loss is and where their positioning is in the Eastern Conference and the fact that they're eight and two since Miles returned to the lineup in the 10 games that he's played. Um, I think he's certainly contributing to winning. So if you don't think that he's going to sign an extension or if you've communicated with him and he's prepared to test free agency and he is playing the best stretch of his career, exactly how long do you want to wait on that? And and what are your you know goals for this season? It, I think it needs to be about more than this season. So if if you don't think that he's going to sign an extension, I almost feel like you need to act more quickly on that um, to get the team back in line. Not because winning is bad or something, but you know he is helping you. And if he isn't going to be here, he's also taking some minutes, like we saw on Saturday. Isaiah Jackson played you know roughly seven minutes against the Orlando Magic, and some of that was of his own doing. He didn't have a great game, but you know it, it it's not going to completely block playing time but you can kind of see what the issue would be there so like that's kind of the biggest issue that I've had is just evaluating what they're doing because they have had this surprising start but then when you look at their schedule and what wins they've had here of late like they just beat Orlando on Saturday Paolo Bancaro and Wendell Carter Jr. did not play they beat Houston Kevin Porter Jr. did not play they played Toronto on the second night of a back-to-back and Pascal Siakam and Fred Van Fleet did not play they played Miami on the second night of a back-to-back and Jimmy Butler did not play so I think that there are a lot of caveats here and some of 
the adjustments that they've been needing to make on defense, particularly during this four-game winning streak with how much they've been mixing in selective trapping and, and switch to blitz and like not just as wrinkles, but because they've literally needed to do it. Like Eric Gordon torched them for 20 points. And then after halftime, they're like, okay, we gotta, we're going to start switching to blitz against him and see if the rest of the Rockets can beat us. And that was a, that was a successful strategy the same way as it was a successful strategy against the Raptors to come out and be like, okay, we're going to start doubling those bully drives. But does that work to the same degree if, if Pascal and Fred Van Fleet are out there? I have my doubts about that. So um, it makes it makes some really tough decisions, I feel, for the Pacers front office right now. I'm glad that I'm not a general manager. Agreed. And one of the challenges that they're facing is imperfect, but probably larger information than uh, than we have about Miles Turner's willingness to come back. Is it a circumstance where he wants to be somewhere else and he won't resign? Is it a circumstance where if the Pacers make a competitive offer, he'd consider it? And there's a chance that Turner doesn't know yet. And like you, the less committal he is, the more willing I would be to transition away from Turner because you're just taking on a ton of risk and he's having this wonderful season and if and I and again we don't we don't know all of that and the, also the Pacers have so much history there like presumably they've had conversations over the years they can track how this has changed and everything else so we'll have to keep an eye on that the last big topic and I don't even know how much we won't spend a ton of time on this that I want to talk about was you wrote a really interesting piece a couple weeks ago about the Pacers help defense and one of the conceits that I really appreciated about it and I've been banging this drum for a couple of years now though you articulated in a different way which I think is very useful is it has taken a long time and we're still not there yet for the nuances of defense to fully become part of the understanding of the sport. And so like we as basketball fans are very comfortable with a lot of nuance when it comes to offensive players and the reads and everything else. It's like, you could be a good isolation player. You could be great at coming off screens. You could do all these sorts of things. And you know, as you like the piece talks about reads and for defense, we're finally starting to get some of that detail. And the idea that like Robert Covington, wonderful help defender, not the greatest on ball guy. And so that was a very useful thing that being good at one part doesn't make you good at all parts and being bad at five of them doesn't make you bad at all of them and like like Harden on post-ups and various other things. And so I I appreciate any opportunity, especially if it's as as well conveyed as, as your piece was, to add that nuance, to add that detail to the way players play defense. Right. So early in the season, and they're still doing it in certain circumstances now, just to give listeners some background, the Pacers will pull the defender over from the wing who would be the nail defender, you know, standing at the middle of the free throw line. A lot of times when a team does that, it's going to be on penetration to try to muck up that driving lane, and then they'll jump back out to their own defender. And hopefully you're making that with enough time to make that recovery. And there is like a sixth sense to it in terms of sliding in and out. Um, But the Pacers, they'll station that guy before the players even started to dribble. Um, They're kind of standing there as a deterrent. This showed up a lot in the game they played against the Sixers, where especially if if the player was pulling in from the left side of the floor um, to the strong side nail, they were doing it to effectively deter James Harden from being able to drive to his left. The problem with it was that it was it was allowing just one easy advance pass. Like they weren't being able to get back out of it um, very quickly. And then they weren't stunning up from the corner very well. And that was kind of showing up as a trend, even though it didn't necessarily show 
show up and how many above the break threes they were giving up. I think still right now they're around like 11th and opponent above the break three frequency. But the problem was, is that wasn't the only thing they were giving up. Like that defender would cut behind the nail guy or that then they'd catch it. And then maybe it's a dunk to the dunker spot out of that. Or, you know, on a ball reversal, that player standing there would get hit by a flare screen. And now that, you know, above the break guys drifting to the corner and now you're getting an easier corner three. So my question that I posed in the article is it seemed very clear to me that schematically, like that's not just a guy, you know, going rogue and making a decision to be standing there that early. Clearly the Pacers wanted the team to be doing that. But at what point, because in certain circumstances, like Andrew Nemard's pretty good at this, where they would effectively next it, which means, you know, the guy coming from the wing, if it's a ball screen, will take the ball handler. That nail defender will fully commit to the ball handler and the guy who would be in rear view pursuit peels off to the wing um, so that you're covering up that potential, you know, one pass ahead. Um, And that's going to be a read. Um, It was clear that it was a read because they don't do it all the time in terms of, you know, Andrew Nemhard's judging, can that player in rear view pursuit get back in front or do we need to execute and call out the switch? So, yeah, I mean, we talk about reads on offense, but we don't often talk about um, the feel that has to be displayed on defense. So you're not just sitting over at the nail and giving up one easy shot if that's something that the Pacers are willing to allow them to do. And the other thing that I broached in that article was at what point, like in that James Harden situation, are you better off going, you know, if you're going to switch the big on to James Harden, just full out blitzing it and hoping that you can force a turnover if you're going to give up an open three anyways, like going switch to blitz instead of like this passive help situation. And now what's funny is these last four games, that's more what they've been doing. Like Eric Gordon's going off instead of just providing the passive help and trying to deter him from driving. It was like, okay, Miles Turner switched on to Eric Gordon. Now we're bringing the nearest defender over and we're just all out blitzing him. And, you know, if Jabari Smith catches at the top of the key, we're hoping that we can, you know, use our recovery path to get back to him because he's not going to probably put the ball on the floor and attack in a lot of those situations. So they've been even more aggressive here with with their trapping in games. I mean, they when they played Charlotte, they were trapping LaMelo Ball over the last nine minutes of that game before he hurt his ankle, before he even crossed half court. And then if he got a screen, they were trapping the screen. So that's in part what makes it kind of hard to evaluate some of what they're doing for the reasons that I said, because those are successful adjustments. I give the coaching staff a lot of credit that, you know, they're assessing what's going out on the floor, making a change to their pick and roll coverage and the team's executing it. But, you know, if the other opponent teams are fully healthy or if they're shooting the three a little bit better, um, I don't know how it works. Yeah, that's uh, an absolutely great series of thoughts there. And I don't really need to follow up too much on it. I think it's pretty pretty self-sustained. And what I want to ask you, so give me to do two questions. The first one is, is there anything else Pacers related that we haven't discussed that you think is important for telling the story of what they've been so far? Yeah, in addition to like that selective trapping that they've been doing over the last four and how that's been successful for them, the other trend that I've noticed uh, showing up more and more that goes back to what you said about, you know, Tyrese Halliburton, 48% of his usage is coming from the pick and roll is that you're starting to see teams zone them a lot more, which is counterintuitive, I think, to what a lot of people think when you think of a good shooting team. So, you know, the Pacers are top five in three-point attempts per 100 possessions. They're top 10 in three-point percentage. They have a lot of shooting credibility out there, but we are seeing, you know, more opponents leaning on zone. I think that they've been the fourth most zoned against team in the NBA, and it has bothered the Pacers a little bit. Like the Miami Heat, went zone 
against them in the fourth quarter and they didn't score points on 11 of 15 possessions. For whatever reason, Eric Spolster went out of that with three minutes to play, which I think I would have stayed in it because the Pacers were struggling as much as they were. And then Orlando on Saturday, Jamal Mosley was having them full court press and then drop back into a 3-2 and they didn't score against that in the fourth quarter either. So I think that they have some decent zone buster plays, but the types of threes that you get against zone are different than the types of threes that the Pacers get out of their man-to-man. So that's one other little wrinkle that I think's worth monitoring with the Pacers moving forward is that if you can get and prevent Tyrese Halliburton from being able to run pick and roll by sitting back into his zone, how does that impact the Pacers offense? Because, you know, in the past, you could put DeMontis Sabonis in the middle of the zone. He has size. He can turn in three on two situations and find cutters. They don't really have a big that they can do that with. So most typically, if you see them flash a player to the middle of the zone, it's going to be Andrew Nemhard or it's going to be Tyrese Halliburton. And then that looks a little bit different when it's, you know, a really, you know, oversized team like the Orlando Magic and trying to make passes around those types of players. So um, that's quietly one other little sneaky thing that I think could, you know, give them a little bit of trouble moving forward if more teams catch on to that. For sure. And the last thing I want to say is you brought up the context of some of the Pacers' recent wins, which I think is completely fair. And the the Pacers are going to face a real test. So starting on Sunday, they have a seven-game Western Conference road trip. Not all of those teams have played perfectly so far to start the season, but we will get a much clearer idea of how this Pacers team is equipped because, you know, you have opponents with a lot of different strengths and weaknesses. So I'm, I'm very excited to see how that seven-game stretch goes. As am I, and I'm hoping that both teams will be as healthy as possible, not only for the quality of the basketball, but just to have a better, you know, hold an evaluation on on how good the Pacers have been playing, but certainly a very fun and entertaining team to watch. If, if people are listening to this and they haven't watched a lot of Pacers, I, I encourage you to do it because you're going to watch a fun product. Absolutely. And it's even better because of your excellent work. So thank you so much for taking the time. Hey, thanks for having me on again. Thanks again to Caitlin Cooper for taking the time to come on. You can read her excellent work at Indie Cornrows which you definitely should, whether you are a Pacers fan or not. You learn so much about basketball. I do too. And like the terminology and the insight that she provides, I think she's one of the absolute best going right now. And you can also follow her on Twitter at C2 underscore Cooper, C2 underscore C-O-O-P-E-R. Love having her on and thought her insights were were great. And if you want more, especially with video, more color on that, check out her work at Indie Cornrows because a lot of it is supplemented by video. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download this podcast, whatever podcast player you use, Spotify, Apple. And if you run into a problem, let me know. I will pass it up the chain. I can't solve that problem for you, but I can get it to somebody who can. We've had that, you know, I believe we had an issue with Stitcher before and then we fixed that and everything else. So really do appreciate that. Also, if you want to support Real GM Radio, you can help other people find the show. That is leaving a rating or review in that aforementioned podcast player or spreading the word, social media, in person, whatever you want to do. And you can also, the most important thing for this show and any other that has them is to check out our sponsors for Real GM Radio. This episode, that is betonline.ag. Use the CLNS50 promo code to get yourself a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit and conceptually also to tell them that you came from us. And so that will encourage them to continue advertising on this fair podcast. You could also check out my other work. Nate Duncan and I are going strong with Dunked On and Dunked On Prime, 15 and 60s, gamers, all the, all the normal stuff there. And as the season intensifies, we'll do that. We'll be doing our first awards of the season, which is going to be a very challenging MVP race to kind of do our, our early takes on that. That's We're still, I think, a little bit over a week away, but we'll be getting there. You could also check out the NBA Strategy Stream, which is the two of us 
broadcasting a game via League Pass. So you watch the game, you have the full video, and then you have us calling the action. And it's a, a different kind of call, but I think a lot of you will enjoy it. And we answer viewer questions using the hashtag NBA strategy stream during the breaks. So our next broadcast is actually going to be Sunday. We've been trying out different days. It'll be Warriors Timberwolves. It's a 3.30 Eastern, 12.30 Pacific start. Should be a lot of fun. Also, of course, have written work at The Athletic. I've taken a little bit of a writing hiatus due to my illness, but I should be back hopefully relatively soonish. But of course, there are a lot of other wonderful people doing really good work. I try to amplify that when I can, including, of course, Kayla Cooper. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. I'll try to reply, but I'm not the absolute greatest at that, but I do read it. It goes into an inbox every day, and I, I think that's important, and I tell you out front what it is. It's feedback. It's not necessarily starting a conversation, but I get a lot of good stuff that way, including like the some of the issues of a podcast player isn't you being good at a different moment or guest ideas or anything else. So that is all for now. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and have a happy Thanksgiving and make it a great day.